I don't know if I believe in simulation theory, but I do believe that we we can't rule it out. I think it's a possibility, and I'm not sure if we can ever really know the true essential nature of reality. And if you have people like Neil deGrasse Tyson saying there's a 50-50% chance, I think that's something I want to at least pay attention to. I don't know if I've had anything happen that I see as actual evidence. I feel like it's also kind of hard in the dystopian technological age we live in to tell, like, is it the Matrix or is it your iPhone listening to you or is it just a coincidence? From Outface Productions, this is Listening Glass. Robin, do you ever just, like, feel funny? Yes, I guess so. Like, um, do you ever feel funny in a way that just makes you question your reality? Hmm. Yeah, I do, actually. Yeah? Yeah. I don't know. Do you ever find yourself wondering, like, am I living in a simulation? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we've reached the event horizon here. I see what you did there. So, yeah, today we're talking about an interesting strain of modern thought, which people refer to as simulation theory. Simulation theory is the concept that some people have come up with that we might actually all be living in a collective simulation right now. Mm, Collective, okay. Yeah, I guess that's just one of the theories. Yeah, now this was a suggested topic, right? Like, I think a listener suggested this one. Yes. We've talked about this. Correct, correct. So, yeah, shout out to our listeners. Thanks so much for requesting a topic. And just a quick plug for that. If you listening want us to cover any particular topic, you can go ahead and do that. You can email us at listeningglasscast at gmail.com. You can also join our Discord community, which is linked in the show notes. Or you can just find us on social media or everywhere in this particular reality. So, um, yeah, the idea that we're all living in a simulation popularized in such works of fiction as The Matrix, I think that's one of the most classic examples. And before I go too deep on this topic, I want to start off with another quiz, because this is something I like to do. So, Robin, strap yourself in. This is going to be an interesting ride. And for you listening at home, don't cheat, don't look at your phone, just think of the first thing that comes to you. Yes. In the answer to these questions, okay? Okay. I'm All right. excited. I like quizzes. Okay. Robin, in which decade did Nelson Mandela die? The arts. Okay. The Probably. Arts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So between 2000 and 2010? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, where did he die? Ooh. Probably South Africa in his home. In his home. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a hospital or something. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Next question, how would you spell the Stein or the Steen in Berenstein Bads? I think it's probably just like an Einstein, right? Like S-T-E-I-N. S-T-E-I-N? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's that's what I thought, too. Uh-oh. Yep. Is that, is that <laughs> wrong answer? Uh, we'll, we'll move on to the next one. Okay. Oh, no. Just take this one quick. How many U.S. states are there? Oh, my reality is already crumbling apart. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Okay, 50. 50 states. Okay, 50 states. That's that's your final answer. Yeah. Okay, all right. Next question. What color is chartreuse? 
Ooh, okay. So this one, it sounds like Charlotte, but it's probably not. So it's probably like uh, like a purpley red. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, purpley red, chartreuse. Okay. okay. Next question. Do you remember a famous portrait of Henry VIII holding a turkey leg? No. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> No memory of that. Okay. I don't really have any mental imagery of Henry VIII. Oh, okay. To be honest. Yeah, that's yeah. probably for the best. Who is that? One of England's most horrible kings. Okay. However, he was also responsible for founding the Anglican Church, which was an effort to drive the Catholics out of England, which is kind of interesting. Next question. You were around in the 90s, right, Robin? Yeah. Yeah. You oh, know, yeah. The about, whole about, thing. About the, the same thing. age as me. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right, do you remember a movie in the 90s called Shazam, which starred the comedian named Simbad? Oh, God, because when you first brought it up, I thought it might have Shaq in it. Okay, that's okay. Uh, I actually... Shazam? Shazam. Shazam. Okay, so so you're, you're doing really well on this quiz. Okay. okay, but okay, I will. I did run across some things on the internet about this related to oh, simulation, so I might okay, have been corrupted, so you might... but like... When they said Shaq and Shazam, I was like, wait, is that not a thing? Because I actually thought Shaq was involved. But we'll get to it later, it sounds like. Well, okay. So this is the last question in the series. Mm-hmm. And I can confirm that you are correct mm-hmm. that there was a film in the 90s and it was called Kazam and it featured Shaquille O'Neal. I was set up. Yeah. Well, I- no, no, no. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> you pass. Okay. All of these questions are examples of what people commonly refer to as the Mandela Effect. Mm. And the Mandela Effect name was chosen because the question about Nelson Mandela was one of the ones that came up most Mm -hmm. when people were talking about this effect. And so basically what it is, is that people started to notice that they were having the same false memories Mm. of various things and that oh the same so it doesn't work if i just have a false memory by myself i can't blame it on simulation theory well you could i mean you know it depends on how ready you are to believe in it right okay but specifically there were certain things that a very great number of people like thousands and thousands of people were were having these same memories Mm -hmm. and when they went back and fact checked them they turned out to be false Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of affectionately dubbed the Mandela effect. Mm -hmm. So let's just go through this list briefly and talk about these. So in the first one, you were almost right. Nelson Mandela died in 2013. Mm -hmm. And he was, I actually don't know where he was at his moment of death. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people thought that Nelson Mandela died in prison. Mm Mm-hmm either in the 80s or in the 90s. No, yeah, because like his big thing was he was in prison. Right. And then he got out and became a political... I mean, he was a political leader when he was in prison, but then he got out and like really kicked ass, right? And I don't know if they have a presidency down there, but he became some sort of figure of state. Yeah, but there were just so many people who were like, oh yeah, Nelson Mandela, yeah, didn't didn't he die in prison in the 80s? Mm. It was like this common memory mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. a lot of people had. And so there were a and lot And it wasn't of- the surveyors being like, which prison did Nelson Mandela <laughs> die in in the 1980s? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's true. Yeah, I mean, if you phrase any question right, you can 
change people's perceptions. So, okay, let's move on to this next one here. Now this, the Berenstein Bears again, this one really blew a lot of people's minds. And I'm not gonna say it blew my mind, but I did, <laughs> I did fall for it. Okay. So the Berenstein Bears was not actually spelled S-T-E-I-N. It was yeah. actually spelled S-T-A-I-N. Which makes no sense. First of all, I'm, I, it surprised me too. Second of all, all of us read that book when we couldn't read. Okay. <laughs> I Good point. probably didn't even read it. I probably just looked at the pictures and yeah. looked at a couple of words here and there. So to me, being an adult and filling in how to spell Bernstein, seeing other words like it, yeah. seems like the most plausible explanation to me. That's fair. You know, a, a whole generation of kids probably aren't the most reliable eyewitness reporters <laughs> on, that, on that particular issue. Exactly. When did, like, what age do you read that book? It's like six to eight. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. right? That's true. Because as soon as I got my reading chops about me, I wanted to move on to more interesting stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I wasn't really wasting my time with the Berenstein Bears. Mm hmm Let's move on to the next one. How many U.S. states are there? Now, you got this one correct, Robin. There are 50 states, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of people who remember there being 51 or 52 you know, states. There's a good explanation for that. Well, the 52, I think there's a good explanation. Okay. Which is that we all have this memory. We all remember that there are two non-contiguous states, right? Oh, and so are you I talking could, Hawaii and Alaska? Right, exactly. Oh, no, that's not what I was thinking. Oh, of. so what were you thinking? Of? I was thinking of Puerto Rico, and I think we even have some smaller territories that are islands. And you know, Puerto Rico is often on the verge of becoming a full state, and so people are always like fifty plus one or two is the way star. we think of it exactly yeah is that there's this kind of blurry ground where people are sort of in the united states but aren't full-fledged states right so. exactly there were a lot of people when interviewed about it said that that they remembered puerto rico being a state mm. this one's not very compelling to me okay. i think it's just an easy mistake to make and i also think it's easy to just get 48 and 50 confused, right? I think you might be catching on that I'm a little bit of a skeptic of simulation theory. And I, I have to admit that I rolled my eyes a little bit when this when we first started talking about it. Yeah. And yet I have learned things since then that, that make it a lot more plausible. But mm. we'll get to that. Mm. Okay. To me. So okay. I'm a little more open-minded, but some of these arguments, I'm like, yeah. They're a little tenuous, yeah. right? They're a little tenuous. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they start to get more interesting for me because... I also thought chartreuse was red. Okay. And not only, but tell me again the specific shade of red. Like purpley red. Like a darker red, right? And yeah. And yeah, kind of a pinkish purpley red. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a massive misconception that okay. many people have in common. It, in fact, is green. Green was like my second choice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Is it like an olive-y, like olivite? Jadey, like jade green? Um, jade is closer to it. It's actually okay. a fairly vivid green. Vivid green. Yeah, huh. and it's like a, maybe it has like a little yellow in it okay. as well. So it's it's bright. It's almost like um like grasshopper in the sunlight green. Wow. Okay. That's so weird. It's it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. So I mean, many, 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 many people have this it's misconception. Not, it's not a common color word. 
It's not. Yeah. No, I mean, you can be forgiven. Like, you can be forgiven for not knowing what color it is. Yeah. But the fact that so many people think, and, and the funny thing is, it's not only is it just red, it is pinkish or purplish red that people Why do we think, think that it that? is. It's the Mandela effect. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's because we're got me. maybe living in a simulation. All right. This next one kind of made my blood run cold because mm. I was just convinced that there was this famous image of Henry VIII holding a turkey leg. What does he even look like? Uh, Henry, who's like as wide as he is tall. Oh, God. Um, with like a big red beard. Cool. And. You know, he was dressed in that kind of um, like Robert Baratheon. I don't know. You who didn't that watch. Is. Okay, you yeah. don't watch Game of Thrones. Yeah, but probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was probably just as sinister and horrible as as Robert. No, Baratheon. Robert was a cool guy. Actually, oh, really? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, Henry VIII was not. He was mm. actually famous for marrying women and then killing them so he could marry other women. Oh, Henry. Now that the Shazam one is fairly easily explainable. Because the comedian Sinbad, you know, I mean, he chose the name Sinbad as his moniker. And he did play these like various roles in the 90s that kind of made him loom large in the mind. So when there was this film Kazam featuring a genie played Mm -hmm. by Shaquille O'Neal, it's not hard to see why people equated those two things. So the false reality is that Sinbad was in the movie instead of Shaq? Yes. Okay. And, and then it, it was, was called, called Shazam. It was, and that, that the well, fake the okay. fake movie was called Shazam. Right. Shazam with Sinbad instead of Kazam with Shaq. Exactly. But so for me, that doesn't really pass the we're living in a simulation test. There's kind of a ready explanation. Some people are just so ready to like buy into this. Just wanna, like, they just want to <laughs> cut. They want to cut the cord with reality, man. Yes. They are just ready to you go. You know, it does give us a lot of really nice excuses. I have a bad memory a little bit. Yeah. And so I was fairly certain that I lived in a simulation. I would definitely blame my short-term memory issues on just or, or long-term for that matter on um i'll just say that the computer running the simulation keeps running out of ram for my little slot <laughs> right yeah. and that's why things slip my mind you know there you it's go. not my fault boss yeah it was it was a buffer underrun robin <laughs> <laughs> These are all examples of what researcher Elizabeth Loftus referred to as false memory. And so she was famous in the 70s for doing studies on the fallibility of human memory. Mm. And she, if you've ever heard of like the famous car crash eyewitness mm, experiment, yeah. I feel like a lot of people have heard of this. Yeah. And it's because it was a really pioneering work in this phenomenon. But basically what she did, and it was actually kind of along the lines of what you were talking about, where she'd play the same video clip of car collisions, and they would be described using different words. And then people would have to estimate how fast the collision was. Mm. And what they found was that when stronger words we like if if words like cars bumping into each other we use then people were more likely to rate it as a 20 mile an hour collision Mm. and if words like shattered Mm -hmm. glass or or, you know creamed impact stuff like that we use that people were more likely to rate it as like a 40 or a 50 degree Mm -hmm. collision and so 
she did a series of these experiments that proved fairly decisively that people's memories and their impressions of things were just very suggestible. Right. That's why when this memory stuff is brought up, it's definitely a more likely situation to me that people just misremember stuff. Yeah. Because we do it all the time. We do. Yeah. yeah, we do. And and furthermore, when you combine that free associative parts of the brain mm-hmm. with the fallibility of, of memory, with the very subjective nature of the way we perceive the world to begin with, mm-hmm. it's not surprising to me. What is surprising to me, though, and what's surprising to many people is just how similar some of these false memories can be. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really what spawned this Mandela effect discussion. Mm -hmm. So there are some people who say no amount of human fallibility is going to explain to me why I, why me and so many other people thought that chartreuse was pinkish red. We're living in a simulation. Mm -hmm. And so this brings us to simulation theory, which is by the way, something that, you know, has been discussed widely outside of of the Mandela effect. Right. I mean, the classic cultural example would be the Matrix, right? Exactly. The Matrix. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, people have speculated about whether or not life is a simulation for a very, very long time. If we take it way back Mm. in Indian philosophy, this concept of Maya, people will often refer to it as the veil of Maya. Hmm. And it basically refers to this very, very old Hindu concept of reality being dreamed into existence. Hmm. Reality is a cosmic dream made by one or more deities. Mm -hmm. And that there's this subjective, objective reality is continually being dreamed into existence by the subjective experience of deities. Hmm. And that humans themselves are having a highly subjective experience of reality this is what they refer to as the veil of maya and that wait so that's strange we are in a dream of a god yes and we're subjectively experiencing it yes so we're separate entities in the dream or are we we're made by the dream right yes that's kind of it's just weird that's weird. A dream within a dream. It's Yes, exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so it's this whole, I mean, it's just like this intense subjective dance, right? Mm-hmm. And the Hindu philosophy is really comfortable with the idea of there being like, for example, a thousand versions of Krishna mm-hmm. or having these gods with these many different faces that mm-hmm. show the, the different aspects of their personality and that they can be any one of those and all of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. And also just a dream of the greater cosmic mind. Mm-hmm. So this kind of comfort with a reality which is ultimately false mm-hmm. is just pervasive mm-hmm. in, in the Indian culture. False. And yeah, false is, I guess, an interesting word, but mm-hmm. the concept of enlightenment Mm -hmm. in the east and not just in india now is often referred to as a kind of awakening Mm. a kind of you're still existing in the same reality you always did Mm -hmm. but all of a sudden an illusion has been lifted and now you understand that all of human life is actually kind of a dream it's like a zombie what is the effect of that belief i wonder Meaning, if you 
wake up and you realize that you're in the dream of a god yeah how does that affect people in the way that they think about themselves in the world is that is that does that have a liberating effect oh it's utterly transforming okay in the relating of the experience by people who claim to have had it okay it is every bit as profound as if you were having a dream and you wake up out of it wow and you realize holy shit you know that whatever experience i was having was totally false okay my eyebrows are up my <laughs> because i i guess i could see how people could react to it that way the other way i could see people reacting to it is seeing their own action is totally futile which is maybe an element of the liberation it is yeah it is Ultimately, it's an experience that a person can't even imagine until they have it. It's yeah, it's so strange. I guess to me, it's it's like undermining reality is what it feels like. It's saying, "Hey, chill, nothing matters." And I can see that being nice, but I could also see it making people feel really insignificant. Maybe, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a liberation seed people need right there. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out what it would mean for me. If I felt that way, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I think regardless of the specifics of how it is related or imagined, there's something so compelling about the idea of knowing the truth about your life、mm-hmm. and knowing, feeling like you are witnessing the flowing vein of reality、mm-hmm. with your conscious human experience,、mm. and、yeah. so. There's this hunger. It's it's why people in the Matrix take the red right, pill,、yeah. even though it's a hard road,、yeah. right? Because once they have a taste of a reality which is more real than、right. the one they're living in, they、mm-hmm. they can't shake it. But we're just poor postmodernist secular humans that <laughs> don't have such luxuries. <laughs> we don't, man. We're just we're doomed to toil in the illusion. <laughs> Doomed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. Now,、uh, interestingly enough, it has appeared in various other places. Like, for example, Rene Descartes in his work Meditations on First Philosophy, he states there are no certain indications by which we may clearly distinguish wakefulness from sleep, and he goes on to conclude that it is possible that I am dreaming right now, and that all of my perceptions are false.、Mm-hmm. So this this concept comes up repeatedly when you start to research this: the idea that this dream within a dream theory、mm-hmm. that there's no way that we can definitively prove that we are not dreaming in、mm-hmm. any moment,、mm-hmm. because we really could at any moment wake up and realize, "Wow, holy shit, that、mm-hmm. was just a dream,"、mm-hmm. which is a very relatable experience that we've all had. Right? Is this the famous meditation where Descartes? Ends with cogito ergo sum, or I think therefore I am.、Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure. I think it might be. What was the name of it? Mediations on first philosophy. Ooh, that's really stressing my <laughs> philosophy 101 <laughs>、okay. memory. But、yeah. I th- it very well could have been, and it's something that's come to mind for me when you said the word false earlier.、Mm. That stuck out to me. Like this very thought. I think, therefore, I am is is my rebuttal to that. Regardless of whatever tenuous ground my reality rests on, nothing makes it not exist,、hmm. right? So whether I am a simulation in an arcade game in an alien arcade, 
or I'm a dream of a god, or I'm dreaming myself, or whatever it is, I'm here. You know, mm. like there's nothing mm. that can take away the meat of this moment, whatever the meat is made out of. Sure. Right. And so, to me, it's absolutely truth. It might not be the whole truth, but it's absolutely part of it. Mm. And there, I don't think there's any way it couldn't be. Right. There's just no way to dispel that. Now you can say, you know, anything you want about what type of simulation it is. At the end of the day, the simulation is part and parcel. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's compelling. So、mm -hmm. there's a fundamental quality to your witnessing consciousness、mm -hmm. that cannot be denied. And so even if what it is that you're witnessing in the moment might be false, your experience of being there、mm -hmm. is real,、mm -hmm. and and that proves that there is the reality of your consciousness.、Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating.、Mm -hmm. I'm sure Descartes would be proud. But that's not what people are interested in. I don't think. No, <laughs> no. I, yeah. Well, but okay. So here's a question, though.、Mm -hmm. If somebody came to you and said, "Robin, you wrecked my car,"、mm. and you said, "No, I, I didn't. Look, it's out there in the driveway. It's fine." And the person looked at it and they said, "No, but I just saw you do it.、Yep. Like it just happened, right?"、Mm -hmm. And if you were like, ah,、oh, I think you were hallucinating or you were dreaming,、mm -hmm. your assessment of that person would be that their reality was less real than yours, right? Wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about. Is a standard. It is. There's a certain standard that we all hold ourselves in reality to,、mm -hmm. and I would say most of us, anyway, when it really comes down to it, we don't want. For our experience to be false,、mm. we don't want for it to be fake. Whatever the universe is in which things are happening that are just kind of a game. I think you just have to learn to embrace the post-fact world, Arjuna. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I feel a deep sadness in my bowels <laughs> to hear you say that. This this whole episode is fake news. This show is sponsored by Megan Brandenburg Design. Your brand illuminated. Does your project or business need a more cohesive visual identity? Do your marketing materials need pizzazz? Megan is your go-to. She also offers apparel design, product packaging design, and motion graphics. Megan worked with us to design the Listening Glass logo, and we love the stunning result. Megan is on Instagram at Megan Brandenburg Design. Find the full link in the episode description. Let's fast forward to today. This idea of living in a simulation has been talked about constantly. But in 2003, a philosopher by the name of Nick Bolstrom he outlined what he calls the simulation argument. You and I were talking about this before we started recording, and so basically, what he outlined, and maybe you can even help me say this as clearly as possible. Is he was making the case that there is a strong likelihood that there is a future in which our computers continue to get better、mm -hmm. and faster and more powerful, and that they continue to get better at doing things like simulating reality, and that if that is the case, and based on the current behaviors we experience, where we're already doing our damnedest to simulate reality. It therefore issues that it's highly likely that in a potential future in which computers get good enough at it, people will continue to simulate reality, and the simulations will get better and better.、Mm -hmm. 
And if we accept that that is likely, if we accept that the like it's more likely than it is unlikely, then we also have to accept that it it is at least highly likely and also maybe more likely than unlikely mm-hmm. that we ourselves are currently living in a simulation. So you're telling me the whole reason we're having this conversation is because of the game The Sims. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I could build a swimming pool in my basement, I totally would, Robin. So I object. Right? Because it was Sim City originally, right? Sim means simulation. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's just an extrapolation. If we just keep playing Sims and they keep releasing new models every year, yeah, you keep being able to upgrade your avatar and your avatar is eventually able to take all the di- personal data you have and eventually able to take cognitive data, brain scan data, things like this, that ultimately it'll be a near perfect replica, mm. good enough to start projecting who you're going to marry in five years or whether you'll get married or whether you'll just stay on the couch or (laughs) alone. (laughs) Yeah. This is people refer to this as the hyper geometric calculator, right? This is like the theoretical computer. That's so smart that it can predict the future. Yeah. So, okay. All right. What do you think about the assertion? Do you think that that's logical? Do you think it issues then if we accept the fact that A, computers are likely to get better and better, Mm -hmm. B, that people are likely to stay interested in simulating reality, Mm -hmm. then C, then it is highly likely that we ourselves are currently living in a simulation created by our future selves? Okay, that's a lot of questions. (laughs) This is the question to me that makes this conversation interesting to have. This Mm. is what made me stop rolling my eyes and being like, okay, there might be something to this. (laughs) So along with that idea of computational power and things increasing and us being able to simulate reality, I think that's where Elon Musk was drawing on that sort of thinking when he, and I think it was on the Joe Rogan podcast, but it was widely quoted where he said that he thinks the chances are extremely high that we are in a simulation. Mm. And that also made me give a little more credence to the idea that, okay, maybe there's something more to this than I thought before. Because I just kept hearing people say, you know, like the Matrix and Mandela Effect. And I was like, mm. <laughs> Once Elon Musk starts talking yeah, about it. I take that guy seriously, I have to say. <laughs> okay, yes, computers will get better. Mm-hmm. Yes, we'll continue to want to model ourselves mm-hmm. in the world. What was the third thing? So if we accept those two premises, yeah. the, the more we accept those premises, Bolstrom states, the yeah. more likely it is, therefore we currently are, or at least could be living in a simulation. Okay, so this is when things get complicated. <laughs> okay, lay it on me. Because will computers keep getting better? Yes, quantitatively better. Mm-hmm. But maybe the question is, are the computers made of things that can actually accurately model reality? That's an excellent question. Okay. Yeah. And so this is when we get into the nature of representation. Like I like to think of things like pixel art. Like pixel art is really crude, but you can convey shapes and animations even with it to great effect with very few elements. Yeah. Right? And that, you know, partially because our vision center is so rich in our brains and you know just the way our minds work it works really well painting art Mm. and the idea is i mean just 
it, like language, everything. You, you take something that has no inherent, I don't know, 16 pixels on a screen and you can make it look like a pair and everyone will look at it and see it. That's neat to me, but I'm wondering, wondering how far it goes. So maybe the first place I want to go is downwards in scale and talk about how we might represent the smaller limits of our universe and how those would be modeled on a mass scale and what the computational strain would be. And what kinds of, it's so hard to quantify. Like if you were gonna run a simulation, would it be a simulation that has many minds that are themselves complete? Mm. Or would it only have one mind that's reacting to minds that appear real? Because to me, you're basically a pixel drawing. I don't have access to your consciousness. Yeah. I hear words and I see gestures and behaviors and I see the 16 pixels that represent the pair and I infer the whole pair. Now, I don't know if the whole pair is there. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so... So is what you are getting at that you're making a distinction between the idea that you and I might be separate actors in a grand simulation? Right, exactly. And then the other option is that your consciousness is the only actor in the simulation which would be a lot easier it would be easier computationally yeah. and you no longer have to simulate the whole universe right. you just have to simulate it's like a video game if you have a, a character walking around a 3d world the computer doesn't have to render the whole world for every frame yeah it only renders a part of the world that that character is interacting with and totally. can see and and can act on yeah and and it can even use various illusions to make it seem like a character's looking at a vast amount of space when there's really not that much actually being rendered. I had a dream in high school, and this was back when I was learning about lucid dreaming. And I remember before I went to bed that night, I was like, okay, if I have a lucid dream, I'm going to test how much detail there actually is in the dream just mm -hmm. to see how real it is. Mm -hmm. And so when I, I became lucid that night, luckily, and when I was looking around at the sky, I was like, okay, let's look really close at the, at the cirrus clouds and see if you can see like wispy little details. Mm. And I looked and I focused and it was all there. <laughs> but wow. in the dream, that wasn't there. I don't think it was there before I focused. Mm. When I focused, my mm. mind fabricated the detail. Yeah. Right? And I think a simulation would work exactly the same way. Do you think so? Absolutely. I, well, I, th I don't see why... A simulation would bother creating everybody's consciousness when it could just model them. It could create pretty crude models mm. of human behavior and just expose a single modeled consciousness to those. Well, I suppose it depends on what you're trying to test, mm -hmm. right? Because there's something fundamentally interesting. Like if I were the, the god of the simulation, there would be something fundamentally interesting to me to see how separately conscious actors interacted with each other. Right? right. I think I would glean more information from that than just seeing how one actor kind of subjectively experienced their own reality. I see why that would be interesting. Yeah. But I don't think it would be crucial to the experiment. I guess it depends on what you're testing. Exactly. I guess if you're studying a group, if you wanted to see group behavior, then you would have to model multiple consciousness. And, you know, and maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just that you and I and everyone that we know, mm -hmm. uh, or, or maybe you and I and just some of the people that we know mm -hmm. are the real actors. It's an interesting thought experiment. The, the tricky thing about it is 
we can't know how good our future selves would get at doing this, right? And、mm. we can't know how good our future computers are going to be. One of the things that bothers me about arguments that people make, such as this, is that they assume that current trends will continue.、Mm-hmm. And I think that that's it's a fairly fallacious assumption. I mean, just examining history, you'll always find that there are these kind of、um, there are these points where certain things reach their limits.、Mm-hmm. Whether it's the growth of capitalism, whether it's the amount of carbon we can put into the environment, whether it's any number of limited resources that we continue to use at a steady rate or even an, a growing rate, right? We make all these assumptions that. The models that we're working with will continue,、mm-hmm. and there's really no guarantee that they will. For example, Moore's law, the theory that computing power will double every what it was every two years. About I think it was two years, something、yeah. around two years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was an observation made by this guy, you know, Moore, who was noticing that. Computer advancements were happening at about that rate.、Mm-hmm. However, Moore's law is already slowing down,、mm-hmm. and the reason for that is that Moore's law was fueled by making transistors、yeah. smaller, right? Which they are getting incredibly small, by the way. Well, and and that's the thing is that they're measuring them in nanometers,、yeah. right? And so, but but or nanometers. <laughs> Depending on which side <laughs> of the Atlantic you grew up on. <laughs> Represent the problem with this is that every time you shave a nanometer off the size of a transistor, it gets harder,、mm. and they're moving towards this theoretical limit of nanometers. Just you know, m- making the transistors, we're just gonna keep making them twice as small, right? They also get more delicate、um, and susceptible to certain. Interferences. There are various indications that Moore's law is not going to continue,、mm-hmm. and so in order for our computing power to keep doubling every two years, we either need to make it more efficient,、yeah. or we need to find a different way to build our computers.、Yeah. Now, I dabbled in electronics for a little while, and I was working with small little integrated circuits, and I thought I understood that transistors were really small, but I had no idea how small these things actually were. <laughs> There's great Intel videos out there. Intel puts out videos、mm, on their like、okay. nano, like they're working on like a nine nanometer CPU architecture or something like that. Maybe it was eleven.、Right. I don't remember. I think AMD actually just came out with seven nanometer technology for their graphics cards, or maybe it was their CPUs. But it's really small. They made a huge market gain there. So we won't get out too far on that. But we're. Down to the point where transistors, it only takes like eighteen or so electrons to trip them one way or the other. Whoa! To like, and those transistors are what flip a bit from one to zero. Yeah. So okay, so if what you're telling me is correct, then there are some atoms in the world that have enough electrons just in one atom. Oh yeah. To trip one of these transistors. Yeah. yeah. That really means that these things are operating on the atomic level.、Yeah. That's really we're getting down there. It's insane. <laughs> like they often will compare the size of a transistor to a human hair, and a human hair is many or- orders of magnitude wider than a transistor.、So、I can't quite remember, but yeah, it's enormous, very small. Yeah, we're talking like way smaller than you think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Well, especially is, considering the fact that they used to be visible to the eye, mm, you know, back when computing began, like a, a discrete transistor was an object that you could hold in your yeah. hand. I don't know if it really matters if we are living in a simulation. It's something I've thought a lot about, and I've kind of come to the conclusion, like, it's really interesting to think about. I don't know that anyone can ever know. But at the end of the day, my consciousness and my reality is real to me, and your consciousness and your reality is real to you. So I don't really know if it matters, if it's a simulation or not. It's not going to change the way I live my life. I'm still going to live my life as though it's real and has a real impact because that's the more ethical side to err on, right? I feel like we digress a little. Let's just say computers, we, we hit the limit and we can't make them smaller anymore. Like mm-hmm. we get transistors to the point where it only takes one electron to flip them unless we figure out a way to get even smaller subatomic particles or forces to, to flip our circuits around, yeah. we'll be kind of stuck there in terms of scale, which we, we might break through that. And I'm not sure what quantum computing is, but quantum does refer to subatomic physics. And yeah. so that might be what's happening with that. I don't know. Sure. So let's just go back to a single human, a single consciousness. A human is an organic being with a brain that is extremely complex. Everything about our biology is very complex. And so if you're actually going to accurately model a human down to an atomic level, how much computing power does that take? And how do you, with ones and zeros, which is what we're currently working with in computer technology, create an architecture that's fine enough and a computer system that's fast enough to be able to account for every atom you know, the nucleus, the electrons, all of the cells that they make up, the subatomic particles, all of the things that are at play, Mm. right? Because you can't arbitrarily exclude, say, okay, below the cellular level, we're not going to model things, right? Because things on the atomic level matter. Mm. Things on the subatomic level matter, Mm. right? So pretty much everything we know, we're going to have to cram in there. And we don't know everything. (laughs) I'm glad to hear you say that, Robin. <laughs> we absolutely don't. Now, do you, do you think all of that would have to be modeled in a simulation, though? That, it won't be. No, I think that's my point, maybe. Okay, okay, yeah. I guess maybe my question is, theoretically, could it be? And I don't know. It makes sense that we could model everything we know. And maybe it takes the computer a few decades to render that model and play it out because we're talking about so much information here, Mm. right? But again, we hit that limit of not fully understanding the mechanics mechanics of things at a certain scale. So how do you account for that? And that that ignorance will be the seed of great error. Mm. Mm -hmm. What we would do instead, right, is what we would, we probably have models already that simulate group behavior, things like that. And they're probably not biological models, right, of organisms. They're probably, I don't know. Actually, it's a good question. I wonder if people are actually already trying to do that, sort of, Mm -hmm. on a much grosser, much more obtuse, (laughs) approximating, approximating level. I like this idea. 
if we're the result of an approximating simulation, which I feel like every representation ultimately is, it's going to be on some level a broader brushstroke than the real thing that that stroke represents. Right? I agree. Okay. Yeah. I think that's the nature of representation. Well, and, and the nature of our perception, really, yeah. right, is that our, our brains are editorializing everything that comes in and piecing together this mm. patchwork that we call reality. Is that mm. what you're talking about? I'm talking about, like, the pixelated pair. Okay. We use the pixelated pair because it gets the idea across, and that's what we need our models to do, is, to, is to come up with a usable prediction. As long as that pair has the behavior and the simulation that we need it to, yeah. as long as the character perceives it as yellow and sweet and full of water and sugar, yeah. then it works. And I think that's what our simulations will do. So what's fun to think about is if we are in a simulation, and this is the definition of somewhat crude to somebody. <laughs> yeah, like we, like our reality right here looks pixelated if this is the broad them. brush strokes of reality <laughs> you know um wow. that's fun to think about man reality would be really real if that right? were the case and, and i think it's easy to get egocentric i don't know if that's even the right word i want to say like anthropocentric whatever we are yeah right to think that we see all of reality you know we're running into issues with understanding small scales but our small scale to them might be a very crude scale right agreed so that's that's fun to think about and we're not going to see it all they're not going to model everything for us unless it is the type of model i was talking about earlier where it only renders the things that say different consciousnesses are exposed to which is yeah. really you know pretty plausible but um, that's a lot more plausible than rendering the whole universe all the time. <laughs> but all of this is just so, I don't know. It's like in a game, things run in frames. You have a game loop. So characters complete actions, and then the program will process those actions and create a new game state, and then churn out a new frame as a response and put the game state represent the game state in pixels for all of the players involved mm. and update their stats and whether they got more berries or coins or whatever the game is and i just kind of wonder if there's any evidence of there being something like a frame rate in the world <laughs> well there is <laughs> is there there is i mean for example okay so the original frame rate that we know of or at least that i know of was the 24 frames per second standard, which was used in old film cameras. And the reason they chose 24 frames per second was that it was the amount of time, that it was the uh, speed of change in the image, which at the time was deemed enough mm. to be convincing to the eye as fluid motion. Mm. So for it to stop looking like a series of still images and start to look like one continuous moving image mm. was about 24 frames per second now perceptually perceptually but that's the human mind we're talking about and i'm yeah. talking about reality itself are you talking about time is it yeah. like I'm, like I, when you cut time down to its smallest yes. increment what is the smallest unit of behavior maybe is the best or, or smallest unit of rate of change yeah that can be measured or perceived and if it's maybe what i'm asking is if it's um discrete 
I don't see any reason to think that time does consist of discrete chunks. It's rather yeah, continuous. Neither do I. Right? <laughs> yeah. But, it, you know, it's interesting because you raise this idea of analog versus digital. So when mm -hmm. we talk about technology, analog mm, is... Wow. Ooh. You know what I'm talking about yeah. here? Yeah. Okay. Right. So, yes. Do you want to unfold that a little? I will. So, so analog technology works using electricity. And so things are modeled basically using these sinusoid waves. Like continuous fluctuations in voltage. Exactly. And I suppose it could be that they also have contiguous steps in their movement, and mm -hmm. we are just not fast enough to detect them with electricity. Yeah. Right? Because we are talking about electricity basically vacillating between positive and negative values here. So it, there is some manner of binary happening there. Mm -hmm. But for all intents and purposes, with our current understanding, analog representations are continuous. They're not uh, built up of right. these tiny little steps. It's not like a frame. It's not like dot, 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 like exactly. a 24 frame movie. It's happening all the time continuously. Exactly. Yeah. So digital representations, on the other hand, basically take snapshots. So it's like a video camera. And basically all digital things work this way. So mm -hmm. whether it's your digital camera, the digital audio that we're using to record this right now, whatever it is, it's, uh, it's basically working in as many little chunks as it can fit in. Mm -hmm. And the more chunks that you fit in between this second and that second, determines the resolution that right. you get so it just gets finer and finer and because our eyes eventually or, or whatever part of our perception that's taking it in is forgiving enough because our eyes work at 24 or, or they updated it to 30 frames per second then it's kind of like this good enough model mm. And so it's, it is an interesting question you raise. Well, I think you bring up an even more interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried to figure out if, there's, if it's possible to build an analog computer. Well, so the first computers were analog. But what do you mean by that? Well, it, so it is interesting because the, the, you're right. The process of computing was a digital process. Right. But the components in the computers were analog components. Right. Meaning, well... But what you mean is like mechanized, right? Well, what I mean is that there's a very technical difference between the way an analog piece of hardware is built and the way a digital piece of hardware is built. And so analog hardware is using these older technologies like cathode rays, for example, oh. whereas digital technology is generating the, the raw bits so basically, all of our technology is ultimately analog if it has current running through well, it. Well, no, right? no. I think, I think we're off base there because I think, to me, the difference between analog and digital is it's what is at the foundation of how you store your data. Sure. So with digital, you're storing ones and zeros. Every, the resolution is whether the bit is on or off. Yeah. And I won't even say analog computer because I don't even know if that's a thing. Right, but in modern day computers, we're using electrical components to store either we're storing things on RAM or we're storing things on a hard drive in the form of transistors, and transistors just hold a charge, whether that's you know live well, we won't go there, so it's just storing a charge, high voltage or low voltage, mm. high voltage is one, low voltage is zero, 
at the end of the day, we're still in, we're grounded in physical reality here. There's nothing yeah. about the computer or their digital computer that's non-material, I guess, sure. right? Which brings me to this concept of is consciousness physical? Is human consciousness ultimately the emergent property that comes from all of our physical bits? I think you just asked the right question. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because, I mean, I think that's what we're really talking about here is the basis of consciousness. Yes. And I think that, you know, simulation really gets to the heart of this. Because if we are living in a simulation, then our consciousness is not material, mm -hmm. but the fundamental fabric which runs the computer, which creates the simulation, is material. Mm -hmm. Or it probably has to be, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Unless we accept... The idea that reality is only simulation, right? If we accept the idea that reality is only the veil of Maya, that there is no reality to wake up into, mm -hmm. then reality may itself just be a big subjective whirlpool churning on itself. Mm -hmm. One of my hangups has been around this question, which is whether or not you can model consciousness with physical things. My gut reaction and my prejudice is that you can't. But then when I'm forced to really think about it, I start conceding that it might be possible. So because there's nothing we've, and it's kind of silly. It's like, I'm, I'm going to say that there's nothing to our material sciences and study of the human organism that tell us that there's something, that consciousness is a result of something other than ordinary physical processes and phenomena. Certainly with the, when you combine the modern findings of science and physics, mm -hmm. uh, I wish I had the vocabulary for this, but it's a certain mechanistic mm -hmm. idea about from whence reality stems, right? So if, if you accept those models, then yeah. yes, I agree with you, yeah. Right, and I think we even touched on this back in our AI show, because we're hit, hitting on some of the similar themes here, which yeah. is, I mean, it's the exact same theme. Can yeah. you create real consciousness from physical components? Or are we really conscious? That's an interesting question. Well, I find, <laughs> I find that less meaningful. Because <laughs> we are our definition of conscious. That's true. Yeah. We, we don't have another definition, really. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to blow shit up, aren't you? <laughs> does make you wonder, though, doesn't it? <laughs> I do want to just loop back to one thing we were saying earlier about it's important to us that we have a shared reality. Mm. And I think that's part of the issue here is that we are worried, not just that we have a reality that agrees with everybody else's, because I think that's actually a smaller issue. What we're actually talking about is whether the, the reality that we perceive to share with other people, even if we were all on the same page, is the ultimate reality. Yeah. And there isn't some superseding is that the right word sure i don't know some parent reality that mm -hmm. we are a child of mm -hmm. that is our an, an envelope a container that we can't actually access that's the question and i feel like i'm gonna end every episode this way and just say it doesn't matter because <laughs> <laughs> if that's the case 
it does just as well to know that as it does not to. Yeah, I agree. Unless there is a red pill. Is it a red pill or blue pill? I it's don't the, red pill. the red pill. Unless there is a red it's pill. The, it's the chartreuse pill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned this because it brings me to a thing on my list, which people spoke about, which was nested simulations. Mm. And so what they were talking about is the existence of real reality is ultimately unprovable if you accept that simula simulated reality is possible because every next step of reality could itself be a simulation. Yeah, but of continually decreasing resolution would be my claim. The further in you go. The further in you go, the more pixelated it gets, the less yeah. resolution you have. You start with a 16 grid pair, 16 but that doesn't make sense. Let's say 16 by 16 pair. <laughs> back to the pair. Okay. And then the, the, whatever reality you create at that resolution, they're going to just, they'll create a 12 by 12 pair, whatever, you know, however that scales down. Yeah. Um, but no one, no one's going to be in a 16 by 16 universe creating a 32 by 32 universe. Mm. Right? Like it yeah, just, because the resolution can't, can't get finer than, <laughs> yeah. than the basic Which is kind of like abstract, but it's kind of like building... You can't build a neutron with an atom. Right. But you can build an apple with, with many atoms, right? Yeah. But you can't build down. You no. can only build up. So... Yeah. Yeah. So, Robin, does it make you uncomfortable imagining that reality is just an infinite string of nested simulations with no final eventual reality at the um, foot of it. It reminds me of eternal recursion and the yeah. kinds of thoughts I have around that. I remember being introduced to in high school. I think it was introduced to me as a Nietzsche idea, Nietzschean. And the idea there was basically we're condemned and I can't even remember what the exact argument was why this was the case, but the idea was that, and it kind of intuitively made sense to me, that when you die, you'll end up repeating your life over and over again. Uh, Groundhog's Day, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, I think the reason I found it easy to think about was that I don't personally have any beliefs for anything that happens after I die. The easiest thing for me to imagine is that my ego dissolves and... I'm redistributed, <laughs> the, mm. the things that make me up. And therefore, as my consciousness dissolves and my, my self ceases to exist, there is no more time for me. And, and that's all I am, right? I'm a being that has a sense of time and of, of ego and of story and sequence and me versus the world. And once that dissolves, I feel like I'm out of time and the only that basically myself that's happening 10 minutes ago is still happening 10 minutes ago. <laughs> oh, it's and, like and frozen in time. It's like, but it's, I was, it's not though. It's just like, <laughs> I feel like the soul, if you were, if you will, kind of has to kind of come back to the beginning. It has nowhere else to go. And like time itself is part of the ego. It's a uh, part of the illusion maybe. And mm. so once that also dissolves, along with at the event of my death and it's just this ongoing thing my life is ongoing all the time at every moment <laughs> i don't know if that makes any sense yeah. to anyone else but like being out of time to me that's what like death will bring that and therefore 
I'm going back to the beginning, basically, because that's the only thing that I don't know. Maybe that's like a really ego-centered way of looking at things. And but yeah, I don't know. Immortality. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe my soul is free to to then attach to another ego and body and and live that time cycle. I don't know. You know what it reminds me of is that final speech that Rutger Hauer gives at the end of Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. (laughs) Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Listening Glass. If you've enjoyed this show, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends and on social media. Your word of mouth means a lot to us and is a way you can help our humble podcast grow. Find us on our Twitter handle at Listening Glass. You can leave feedback there or by emailing us at listeningglasscast at gmail.com. Join the ongoing discussion in our community by joining our Discord server, linked in our episode description. This episode features the track This in Sitter by Mac Woodruff, the track Dr. Beauchef, Penguin Dentist by Kneebody, and also the track Lipton Service Boy by Eero Johannes. We're incredibly grateful to these artists for letting us feature their work. Find more information about them in the episode description. Many thanks to Emily May for her contribution of words and thoughts to this show.